Romans 5.10, which says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Now in this verse there are, uh, what we could say, two parts to Christ's saving work. There is a reference to His death, the death of His Son, that would be the Son of God, Christ. And then we have just a, a reference uh, there at the end of the verse, His life. That would be His, his present resurrected life at this very moment. Christ died, and Christ also presently lives. And then there's a reference to what we could, we could call two parts of the saving work applied to us. There's, at the beginning of the verse, being reconciled to God, that happened by the death. And then it simply says, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved. It's referring to some future work of salvation that is connected to Christ's present life. Now, I think it's appropriate to consider that future work as dealing with what is referenced in verse 9 as the wrath of God. The point that is being made here is that something happened when Christ died a long time ago, outside of us, objective. The Son of God died and that reconciled us to God in a legal sense. But he didn't stay dead, as we saw this morning. He was raised from the dead. And he, he lives now. And his, his present living right now is also a part of his saving work. It's doing something for us now. And what Paul seems to be getting at is if, if God would, through his Son, or we could think of it from the angle of Christ, if Christ would die to secure that the the most difficult part of our salvation, our being reconciled to God, how much more should we expect Him to bring all of it to completion and continue the rest of the work so that on the day of judgment, we have nothing to fear? To think of the opposite. Could we imagine that God would give His Son, that His Son would die, shedding His blood to reconcile us to Himself, raise Him from the dead, and then... At the final judgment, God say, "Oh, sorry, you just didn't. It just didn't measure up. You didn't make it." We should say, "Of course not." If He would give us His Son, if He would reconcile us to Himself while we were enemies, now we're not enemies anymore. Should we not expect that He would go on to bring the work to completion? That's the picture. Christ accomplished something for us in His death. He, he reconciled us to God, but then He rose from the dead. He's now living. But we should not think of Christ now living as having cast us off or uh, put us out of His mind. We're not old news to Christ. We're, we're not that, that saving work He did a long time ago, but He's moved on. Uh, think in terms of the Song of Solomon. We are not an old girlfriend to Christ. We are the present bride of a living Christ now, and He still presently lives for us and for our salvation. And that's the theme for this evening. What is Christ doing right now? So we have two main headings. The Son of God gives life to His people, 
and the Son of God intercedes for His people. So now I'll pick up reading in the workbook. We read, in the previous chapter, we considered four aspects of the Son's work of salvation, which He accomplished during His time on earth. However, it is important to understand that His work on our behalf did not end when He ascended to heaven. In this chapter, we will consider two ways in which the Son is still actively involved in the salvation of His people. The Son gives life to His people, and He intercedes for His people. Now, when we read statements like that, His work on our behalf did not end, our our minds might immediately go to statements like Christ made on the cross. We read in John chapter 19, verses 28 to 30, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now fulfilled, said, to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We might say, Did he finish the work or did he not? I mean, he said it was finished. Was it finished or not? And if it was finished, how can we now say that there's still more to be done? Well, we might relate this, and this, this helps me. We, we might relate this to the, the finishing of creation in Genesis chapter 2. It says that God finished his work. He rested from the work. But then Jesus comes along millennia later and says, My Father is working until now, and I'm working. Well, did He finish the work or did He not finish the work? Well, yes and, and, and yes to both. Even though the formal work of creation was completed, that didn't mean God created and then drew back from it and just left it to spin. But rather, God finished the creating work and then He took on the work that we call providence where He, he begins to take all that He has created and bring it to the purpose for which He created it. Well, the same we could, could be said of, of Christ and His work on our behalf. When He said on the cross, it is finished, He referred to the formal, legal, and passive suffering which He was to endure for the salvation of His people. But the work that He accomplished still has to be taken and made to serve the purpose for which it was intended. The Word took flesh, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, rose from the dead. These are, again, objective historical acts, events that took place in time. But the value and efficacy of that work must be applied to souls, here and now, and going on until He returns. And it's the application which takes place through Christ's present ministry. So, is it finished or is it not? Yes and yes. He did finish a part of the work, and now He lives to take that work and bring it to its full consummation. That's, that's the picture here. So the first heading is, when we're basically asking the question, what is the Son of God doing now? first heading is, the Son gives life to His people. The life that the Son gives to His people is not confined or limited to the resurrection. He is the source of both our physical resurrection at the end of the ages and our spiritual life and strength in our daily lives now. When we hear He gives life, our minds might immediately run to the resurrection. Yes, He, will, he gives life to our physical bodies someday, which is true, but spiritual life, the spiritual life that we have now is also from the Son of God. 
Turn to John chapter 14. Probably one of the more well-known statements from the mouth of Jesus. He says that Jesus makes a remarkable statement about Himself. What does it confirm to us about His person and the believer's dependence upon Him? John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now what does this teach us when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life? That's the focus there. What does this teach us about Christ's person? Well, this is a reminder that Jesus is the God of Scripture. The God who breathed life into Adam. The same God who gives natural life to every living thing. The older writers would call it animal life, the animating life in, in, in every living thing. God gives that life. But also spiritual, what I would call grace life. Not just animation, a thing is alive, but, but spiritual life of grace also comes from God. Jesus says, I am the life. I am that, that life of God incarnate. He's saying... I am the God of Scripture. And the note here points that out. If Christ is not God, then this statement is blasphemous. Christ is not only the embodiment of God's truth and the way of reconciliation, but also the source of all life, physical and spiritual. Your dog would not be alive if not for Jesus Christ. Your cats would not be alive without Christ. The flowers would not be alive. Grass would not be alive. Birds would not live. Fish would not swim if it were not for the Son of God. He is the life physically, but then also the spiritual life of all believers is the Son of God. He gives life. That's what He's doing now. Do we have spiritual life? Christ is giving that life this very moment. The other question was, what does this confirm about the believer's dependence upon Him. Well, going back to what we said this morning, we're born dead in trespasses and sins. We're born without that spiritual life. We are without gracious spiritual life, even though we have that animating or animal life. When you come out of your mother's womb, the doctor might smack you, and you're crying, you're breathing. But that's not the life of grace. That's not saving life. Our souls are by nature cut off from the life of God, which means we are utterly dependent upon Christ, who is the life. To get Christ is to get life. To be begotten from heaven, born from above, raised from the dead, given new life. These are all ways of saying that one has come into union with Christ. We've come to possess Christ. I've gotten life because He is the life. Without Him, we would remain dead. All right, look over at John 15, verses 1 through 8. I won't read the whole section. We'll answer some questions about this section. But He says that here Jesus makes a similarly remarkable statement regarding His person and the believer's relationship to Him. The first question is, how does Jesus refer to Himself in verse 1? John 15, 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. How does Jesus refer to Himself? He says, I am the true vine. 
What does this tell us about him as the source of the believer's life? This tells us he is the source of the believer's life. He's the vine. It tells us he's the only source of a believer's life. There, there might be things that, are, that we often latch onto in this world that we think this thing is, is, is giving me life. It appears to give us uh, uh, vitality and, and, and motivation and, and all of that, but only Christ is the true vine. There, there are even things that we run to that we think are giving us spiritual life. No, only Christ gives spiritual life. He's the only true vine. According to verses 4 and 5, how dependent is the believer upon Christ as the source of all spiritual life? Look at verses 4 and 5 of John 15. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. How dependent is the believer upon Christ? Absolutely dependent. Very often when we think about bearing fruit... The first thing that comes to our mind is, is a, a, a list like Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, we might think of the outworking of those things as we deal with other people in the world. A, a, a particular instance where you were very patient or where you exercised self-control. You might think of, of those particular instances, what we might uh, consider uh, big or, or outward manifestations as fruit. That's not incorrect. But it's also not complete. The fruit that comes from spiritual life is literally the totality of every individual grace that is worked in us by God's Spirit. Everything. So faith is a fruit of God's Spirit. True repentance is a fruit of the working of God's Spirit. Every step you take toward the mortification of a sin. We might even think of, of the, the walk of sanctification and we might say, well, looking back, I, I don't feel like I was able to really put that sin to death at this date, but I began to work at it six months prior. Did you take a step in that direction? That's a fruit of the work of the Spirit. You can't do that by yourself. Every inching forward that we make in practical godliness, even in our thinking, we could say, I, I might not have fixed my actions just yet, but there was a time when all of a sudden my thinking began to shift. That's a fruit of the work of the Spirit. And so our Lord Jesus is saying that apart from this vital union, we in Him and He in us, there will be none of these fruits. Not even in the least. He doesn't say, you, can, you only barely put forth a bud apart from me. No, He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. No thing. Not at all. Not a single kind or evidence or, or not even a smell of a fruit or a bud apart from Him. Fruit cannot come where there is no life. Christ is the life. He's the branch. And so only when we're united to Him and we in Him and He in us, can any single fruit come? Now, why is this important for us to understand? How, how can we make this practical? Some of you have probably heard of the uh, 
the marrow controversy that took place a few hundred years ago around, centered around this creed called the Octorarder Creed. Here, I'll read you the creed. Pastoral candidates were required to either affirm or deny this creed. So I'll read it, and you think in your mind, would I say I affirm or would you say I deny? It is not sound and orthodox to teach that we must forsake sin in order to our coming to Christ. That's the creed. A pastoral candidate, they would read that, they would say, do you affirm this or do you deny this? It is not sound and orthodox to teach that we must forsake sin in order to our coming to Christ. Now, it could be worded differently. It's kind of confusing. But we would say, we affirm. We affirm. Now why? Well, let me reword it. Here's the controversy. Must a person forsake their sin in order to come to Christ? Or may a person come to Christ so that they can then forsake their sin? You see the difference? Well... Is forsaking one's sin a fruit or evidence of the Spirit of God, of being united to Christ? We would say yes. Can anyone forsake his sin, truly, apart from the power of God? No, you can't. So then, we must first come to Christ, be grafted into the vine, so that we can then bear the fruit of forsaking our sin. As he says, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from him, you can do nothing. The, the note there, I'll read it. He says, the analogy is a powerful, as powerful as it is beautiful. A branch can only bear fruit if it is connected to the life-giving vine. Once it's cut off, it withers and becomes fruitless. In a strikingly similar fashion, the believer can only possess spiritual life and bear fruit through his or her ongoing relationship with Christ, learning and obeying His Word and relying upon His power. So many, and there might be some of you here, so many are convinced that once you forsake your sin, then you can come to Christ. And, and maybe you've tried and tried and tried. To forsake sin, forsake sin, forsake sin. I've I got to get rid of my sin, then I'll come. And you're finding out it doesn't work. You can't do it. There's no power. There's no life there. You don't have the ability. You don't start producing a little fruit and then get connected to the vine. That's not how it works. You come. You get the vine. You get the life. Then you will begin to have the power to forsake sin and, and produce every other fruit. It's extremely important for not just for salvation, but the ongoing life of a believer. If you think that you can mortify any sin or take a single step in a positive direction in righteousness apart from Christ, you're, you're, you're confused. You can't do it. We cannot do it apart from Him. That's the point. So He, he gives that life now. Turn to, with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4.13, Paul says, I can do all things through Him 
who strengthens me. Him being Christ. The word strengthens comes from the Greek word in dunamao, which can also be translated empowers. It is a present participle. I have learned, I think it's accurate to say that when, you, when you're reading a participle, we often think in terms of ing. So we could translate this, who is strengthening me, a present participle. It indicates continuous action. Christ continually gives life and strengthens His people. So it's Him in us by His Spirit who is our strength, the, the power to do anything. This, is, this might be uh, helpful as we consider 1 Corinthians 4 when we finish the chapter, Lord willing, next week. The kingdom of God is not in talk but in power, action, the product. That's, that doesn't come anywhere except for from Christ. If, if, if we have Him... We have strength. It's we who can do all things, but it's only by His strength. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. You'll often hear people say, I think they mean well, but they'll say things like, we need to let Christ live through us. Just let, let Christ live through you. No, no, Christ doesn't live through you. That's backwards. We live through Him. He dwells in us by His Spirit. Who lives? I live. You live. How? By Christ in us. He doesn't live through us. We live through Him. We must do the living, but it's only by His power. So we see Christ gives life to His people. We produce fruit by Him. We live by His strength. And all of this is in the present tense. So Christ continues at this moment, right now as we sit, He is giving life to dead men. He's giving grace to needy men. He is pumping fruit producing gracious sap into His people. Right now. If, if you're sitting here and, and from the Word of God, you're, you're learning, you're growing, you're, you're, you're moving in a direction of Christ-likeness, you're being sanctified, being, being converted in your soul, in your mind. If you, you're hearing things and it's producing uh, joy in you or peace in you or comfort in you based on what the truth is saying, you can say, Christ is doing that from heaven right now. He's giving that to His people. This is all a present reality. He does this even as the incarnate Son is seated at the right hand of God in the heavens. He's giving life to His people. He, he didn't just rise from the dead and go up into the heavens and, and to twiddle His thumbs. He's, he's doing something, giving us life. But, but the second heading is even more specifically... The Son intercedes for His people. He's presently interceding. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Before we read the opening, I want to read to you some passages of Scripture, I, I, I find this fun to string together passages, uh, several passages of Scripture. I'm not going to read the references. I'm just going to read multiple passages to set up the, the picture. 
So just listen. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's the scene. Now I'll read. Having ascended to the right hand of God, Christ acts as the advocate for His people. And He lives forever to make intercession before the throne of God on their behalf. Christ's continuous intercession for His people does not mean that He's on His knees before the throne of God begging for mercy on our behalf. Rather, He intercedes as one seated at the very right hand of God, as one who is omniscient and knows every need of His people, as one who has all authority to speak on their behalf, and as one who annuls every accusation against them. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let me read the note. The fact that we have an advocate before the Father should not make us apathetic about holiness or careless about sin. On the contrary, it should motivate us to obedience because of the great work the Son has accomplished for us. However, the most mature Christian is still subject to moral weakness and sin. Therefore, it is our great consolation that we have an advocate with the Father. The word advocate comes from the Greek word parakletos, which denotes a helper, or one who is called to speak on another's behalf. The word propitiation comes from the Greek word halismos, or hilasmos, which means appeasement or satisfaction. It refers to a sacrifice given to appease an offended party. The Son is the propitiation for our sins in that He offered His life in our place as a sacrifice for our sin. His sacrifice satisfied the demands of God's justice against us and appeased His wrath. He can be our advocate and defender because He Himself has paid for our sins. Now He said, read this verse and write your thoughts. So I wrote my thoughts. John said, if anyone does sin. Do we not still sin? We still sin. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone does sin, there's something. We, we do sin. Do we not find ourselves thinking, saying, and doing things that are so contrary to our Lord that it makes us question whether we even know Him or not? Is there not sin 
or at least sinfulness mixed in with our very best moments, we, we say, yeah, we, we sin. Okay, do you think God is surprised by this? Do you think that maybe God thought it would work out differently? Do, do we think that Christ hanging on the cross was thinking, you know what, I'll, I'll do this, I'll pay for their sins, I'll rise from the dead, I'll give them my spirit, and then sin will be a thing of the past for them? Of course not. He knows our frame. He knows your frame. He knows your frame better than you do. How do I know that? Because sometimes you are surprised by your sin. He's not surprised. He knows who we are. God's not surprised. This is why he's, He has, we, we could say, factored in the present ongoing intercession of Christ because we're not perfected yet. We still sin. If anyone does sin, what do you mean if? Of course we sin, John. John knows that. He says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If and when any of us does sin, and we will, we have an advocate. We have one commissioned to speak for us. We did not hire him because we could not afford him. He is a court-appointed lawyer, a court-appointed advocate. He, he, he costs way too much for us. What's his record? Well, he's never lost a case yet. He's the best lawyer there is. He's never lost. He's one with the judge and is himself the judge of all men. Our advocate is our elder brother. Our advocate wears our flesh. Our advocate was tempted at all points just like we are and yet without sin. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's our advocate. If anyone does sin, you've got an advocate, a court-appointed lawyer, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's got a perfect record. You say, how is his record so good? How, how does he always win? How can he have a perfect record when he's only advocating for pitiful sinners? Well, the answer is because when he argues a case, he argues on the count, on account of his own life. He's the righteous. The only evidence entered into the record are his own nail-scarred hands and feet. No prosecutor has a chance against our advocate. That's good news. If we sin, we've got an advocate. What's, what's Christ doing right now? He's our advocate. Standing. He's been called to our service. We don't have to say a word in court. We have an advocate. All right, turn to Romans chapter 8. We see this more explicitly. Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34. At this point, we, we enter into the courtroom. As our advocate, we might read it this way, Jesus Christ the righteous is giving His closing arguments in our case. Obviously the verbiage is going to be mixed up here, but I, I like to add a little color to these types of statements. So, so we might imagine that He would begin by saying, Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies... Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The jury says, case closed. There's no, no charge can be brought. And I do think we have every right to apply this to ourselves personally. Who shall bring any charge against me? God's elect one. It is God who justifies me. Who is to condemn me? Christ Jesus is the one who died for me in my place, who endured my penalty. More than that, who was raised for me, who is seated at the right hand of God for me, who is indeed interceding for me every moment. Who's going to bring a charge? When you have sinned, as John said, if anyone does sin, you will. When you have sinned, don't run from the judge. Get to the judge because the judge is also our advocate. You could even make this prayer before His throne. Who shall bring any charge against me, your chosen one? It is you, O God, who justify me. Who is to condemn me? Christ Jesus, the righteous, is the one who died for me in my place, who endured my penalty more than that, who was raised for me, who, who, who is there at your right hand for me, who indeed is interceding for me this very moment. You ever pray this way? Who's to condemn? Is your son not there at your right hand? Is my advocate not there? He is. And that's my plea. You see, this is immensely practical. Ho hopefully it's medicine to your soul. When you sin, if we do sin, we've got an advocate. It's already been taken care of. He says the questions, who will bring a charge against God's elect and who is the one who condemns are one of the same. It is as though God were issuing a challenge to every being in the universe, including Satan himself. The reason why no charge or condemnation can be brought against God's people is twofold. First, God has justified His people or given them a perfect legal standing before Him. This was accomplished through the perfect life that the Son lived and the death that He died on behalf of His people. Second, the Son now sits at the right hand of God as His people's intercessor and defender. This is gospel. This is good news for us. All right, turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. I really want to get through all of this. Hebrews chapter 7, 23 to 25 says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So the priests of the Mosaic institution, they could only serve as long as they lived. And they, they always had to have more because people always die. The Lord Jesus, however, being very God of very God, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There needs to be no... No, no one to fill his spot. He doesn't have to raise up a, a, someone to come behind him. His work is eternally effectual. He is able to save to the uttermost. He has the power, not merely the desire to save to the uttermost. He does have the desire, but desire without ability is, is nothing. He ha he's able to save to the uttermost to the outside, to the end, to the last, to the furthest point. 
John Bunyan says, If it is a glory to be a Savior, a great Savior, then it is a glory for a Savior, a great one, to save and save and save to the uttermost. To the uttermost man, to the uttermost sin, to the uttermost temptation. He therefore counts it an honor to be a great Savior and to save men to the uttermost. Not to the uttermost of His ability, but to the uttermost of our necessity. We could never out-necessitate Christ's ability. His ability will always go far beyond what we need, but He's able to save to the uttermost. That's what He's doing in heaven by His intercession. He's, we could say He's still saving. He's saving in that, yes, he's, he's making new saints. He's gathering in His people, but He's also saving in that He's protecting old saints. He's keeping old saints, making them more and more holy by His intercession. Christ at this moment is saving you, keeping you, protecting you all the time. All right, one last exercise, John 17. The high priestly prayer of Christ. I'll, I'll simply read the text in order and then we'll, I'll, I'll name the corresponding petition. If you have not uh, already done the exercise in your workbook, please be honest and mark them appropriately. But I'm going to give the answers now. John 17 verses 11 and 12. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So there we see Christ is interceding for the perseverance of his people. The perseverance of his people. We do believe in the perseverance of the saints. We believe that all who are truly saved will persevere in the faith until the end. Now, that has been caricatured often. We do not believe that that means that it is our job to keep ourselves saved. No, we will surely persevere. Why? Because He's praying for our perseverance. Because He is, we could say God is preserving us in answer to Christ's prayer, and therefore we are able to persevere. He gives that life, that fruit, that causes us to persevere. Verse 13, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So here Christ intercedes for the joy of His people. Think about that. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is praying that you would be joyful. That we would be joyful. Now obviously this is not the same as a carnal, worldly happiness or, or bubbly uh, attitude at worldly things, but it's also not, this joy is not, a strange, emotionless, cold, psychological state of mere affirmation. Yes, I am joyful. That's not what he's talking about. That's, that's inhuman. He's praying that we would be joyful. Like this. Joyful. 
In Luke chapter 10, Jesus, it says, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, and that led to Him praying a prayer of thanksgiving. Joy and gratitude or affections or emotions or, dare I say, feelings. Feelings. Much of so-called Christianity has made religion all about feelings to the negation of objective truth. All they care about is how you feel. But we would not be correct to go to the other extreme and make it all about objective truth to the complete exclusion of how we feel. We're humans. We're made to feel. Being a Christian doesn't mean that we're not human beings. And Jesus Christ knows that. And He prays that we would have joy. He wants us to be joyful. Verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Christ intercedes for the protection of His people from all satanic forces. And He also says that we could look at Luke twenty-two thirty-two, 32, where he says to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The Lord Jesus did not say that Satan couldn't have Peter. The Lord Jesus didn't say, don't you touch Peter, he's mine. You leave him alone. No, he said, yeah, you can have him, you can sift him. Peter, I prayed for you. Your, your faith won't fail. That grace, that fruit, that won't fail. But Satan's going to sift you. So we have... No promise that Satan will never touch us or tempt us or sift us. We don't have that. We do, however, have the, the promise that we cannot be ultimately claimed and destroyed by the devil. We, the devil can only serve, serve the Lord's greater purpose in preparing us, sanctifying us, so that we can then turn and strengthen our brethren, like he did with Peter. That's something Christ prays for. Verses 17 to 19, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Here Christ intercedes for the sanctification of His people. Christ prays that we will be made more and more holy in our thoughts, in our affections, in our words, in our deeds. He is concerned that we become more holy. Now we're not given a scale we're not giving, uh, given a rating system or uh, a timeline or a checkpoint where we can say, all right, you should be right here based on the scale. Christ is praying. We don't have that. All we have is He's praying. We will be sanctified, every one of us, at different, at different stages, different, different speeds, different levels of advancement throughout our life. And that will be by the truth. Christ's heavenly intercession includes... The application of the Word of God to our minds, the conviction of it in our hearts, and the transformation of our lives in light of that. Christ prays that we would be sanctified, made more holy, through the truth of God's Word. We, we might imagine that Christ goes into overtime in His intercession. When we get out the Word of God and begin to read, when we gather as a church and begin to study the Word of God, Christ begins to pray, sanctify, 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 make them holy. Make the word effectual. He's praying for that. Verses 21 to 23. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one 
so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Here Christ intercedes for the unity of his people. The Lord Jesus desires and prays that his people universally as well as locally would be united, would be of the same mind and of the same judgment, would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, that we would walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. He wants us to be unified. He prays for that. In verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Here Christ intercedes for the future glorification of His people. Our Lord wants us to see Him. He wants us to be with Him. He wants us to see Him and to be with Him more than we want to see Him and to be with Him. He prayed for it. And I do believe that this high priestly prayer is given to us as something of a pattern of Christ's present priestly intercession so that we would have an idea of what this looks like. In other words, Christ is still interceding and praying that we would all be glorified and brought into His presence. Do we need any more evidence to believe that He loves us? Could He do any more than this? In conclusion, for the application, I want to read to you the lyrics of a hymn. It's number 223 in our hymn books. If we knew it, we'd sing it, and maybe we'll learn it someday. But listen to this. I think this is a, a, a Wesley hymn. I think this is John Wesley. Uh, Charles Wesley. Here's the application. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands. Before the throne my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for every race. His blood atoned for every race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds He bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive Him. Oh, forgive they cry. Forgive Him. Oh, forgive they cry. Nor let that ransom sinner die. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for His child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. Christ lives and He lives for us. This should make us confident. This should cause us to shake off guilty fears. If we do sin, which we do, is Christ surprised? No. God's already made provision in a present, ongoing intercession. Christ is doing that for us. That's good news. Let's pray.